there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of miscarriage, child death, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The 1840s were marked by a poor harvest and an even poorer economy. So many lower-class Brits were plunged into poverty and starvation, the decade was dubbed the Hungry Forties. To make matters worse, during that period, a mysterious and deadly epidemic swept through England. In late 1840, Simeon Mead and his infant son both died of sudden illnesses. The newly childless widow, Sarah Dosley, went on to remarry and then lose her next several husbands to gastric conditions. In 1841, a British housewife, Betty Eccles, buried three daughters, who'd all died in quick succession of some unidentified ailment. Then her stepson also fell ill and passed away in 1843. In January 1845, Joseph and James Chesham became ill with a mysterious disease. It caused stomach pains, vomiting, diarrhea, and ultimately death. Their mother, Sarah Chesham, survived unscathed. In June 1847, Marianne Milner's sister-in-law and niece sickened and died after eating the pancakes she'd prepared. Through the 1850s, a nurse named Catherine Wilson lost countless patients. When police investigated all of these instances, they found a common cause. The women were poisoning the men, women, and children around them with arsenic. Something afflicted the poor women of England. This contagion wasn't caused by any virus or bacteria. It was an infectious idea, a compulsion to kill. And for a decade, impoverished women with nothing to lose joined the trend of poisoning their unwanted husbands and children. Soon, the pandemic reached an unhappily married Marianne Cotton, and Britain's most infamous Black Widow would go on to claim more than a dozen victims. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we'll take a look at the early life of Mary Ann Cotton, who resolved from a young age to rise above her impoverished history. However, the restrictions that Victorian England placed on women like Mary Ann led her to determine the only way to get ahead was to murder those who stood in her way. Next week, we'll explore how Mary Ann's crimes escalated over time. We'll also discuss how she was finally caught and sentenced after killing over a dozen people, presumably including her own mother, three of her husbands, and 11 of her children. Mary Ann Cotton lived in Victorian England, a time and place that was notoriously unfriendly to independent-minded women. After a childhood marked by the struggles of poverty and the untimely death of her father, Mary Ann resolved to pull herself up out of her social class. She achieved that goal through a series of marriages for money, followed by the murders of her husbands, children, and stepchildren. Marianne was particularly intelligent and knew that arsenic was readily accessible and difficult to detect. She managed to operate undetected as a serial killer for nearly 20 years. She was so prolific and so good at escaping suspicion even today, we can't be certain how many victims she killed in total. But in order to understand the social and psychological factors that turned an ordinary housewife into a deadly black widow, we have to look back at her formative years in a small mining village in northeastern England. Marianne's roots trace back to a tiny village called Low Morsley, outside of Sunderland, England. The small town was a longtime mining community with a strict and all-encompassing class structure. Marianne Robson was born on October 31, 1832, to parents Margaret and Michael Robson, who were still 19 and 20, respectively. Marianne's dad made a modest salary as a coal miner. His income was meager, but his daughter seemed unaware of what she was missing. All that Marianne had ever known was her meager existence, and she couldn't even imagine the comfortable life of the upper class. In fact, she later described the first decade of her life as days of joy. Marianne attended classes at a local village school where her teachers noted that she was intelligent, well-behaved, and tidy. She strived to do well in her studies, and before she even hit puberty, she was permitted to teach Sunday school at the local church. As near as we can tell, Marianne thrived and enjoyed this kind of responsibility. She had no inkling that one day she'd be expected to support her family, either through employment or a financially advantageous marriage. Marianne received her first dose of harsh reality in 1842 when she was nine. Her father suffered a fatal fall down a mine shaft while working. His body was delivered to Marianne's house a short while later in a sack bearing the stamp property of the South Hetton Coal Company. In a single day, her idyllic childhood was over. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. A study conducted by the Committee for the Study of Health Consequences of the Stress of Bereavement found that young children often lack the mental maturity necessary to properly process their grief. Instead, when a child loses a parent, their grieving process will draw out for years until they're mentally able to reckon with those feelings. These children are significantly more likely to develop mental disorders as adults. Marianne's father's death was a major blow emotionally. To make matters worse, she soon learned that her family's stability was inextricably tied up in her father's work as a minor. His company owned the house they lived in, and the family faced eviction. In order to preserve their home, Marianne's mother remarried a man named George Stott, who worked for the same mining company. But he frequently clashed with Marianne and made her feel unwelcome in her own home. In order to get out of the house and away from her stepfather, a teenage Marianne began working a series of low-skill, low-paying jobs. Besides granting her a respite from her home life, the work also provided her with extra income. One of Marianne's early jobs was working as a maid. Her customers were all wealthy, and for the first time in her life, Marianne got a taste of how the upper crust lived. Naturally, she wanted those same perks for herself. Although she was hardly affluent, Marianne began to adopt some of the habits of her wealthy patrons. She hired a maid of her own and retained cleaning services for the rest of her life. Psychologist Carol Kaufman explained that wealth can signify either stability or superiority to people. While she was working, Marianne at least had the stability she needed. Meanwhile, her employment of a maid, although it may have seemed excessive, allowed her to demonstrate her sense of superiority over the circumstances of her childhood and home life. But simply hiring a maid wasn't enough for Marianne. She wanted all that the good life had to offer. And because employment opportunities were incredibly rare for women in Victorian England, that meant she had to marry for money. It was a hard choice that Marianne faced. A marriage also meant children and motherhood, which didn't appeal to her. But the alternative was poverty and a lifetime of hard labor. Soon, a strange social phenomenon would present her with a solution to her conundrum. In 1843, a female serial killer named Elizabeth Eccles was hanged after she was found guilty of poisoning several victims to death with arsenic. Eight years later, Sarah Chesham also received the death penalty, once more for fatally dosing four people with arsenic. Eccles and Chesham were just two female serial killers to achieve notoriety in what came to be known as England's Hungry Forties. Over the course of the decade, at least nine female serial killers were convicted, and it's hard to say how many more were never caught or never reported on. All of the cases were strikingly similar. Most of the killers were underprivileged, born into poverty, just like Marianne. Many used poison. Arsenic was a particularly popular choice due to its ready accessibility as pest control. The press dubbed the pattern an epidemic. 
Even in Marianne's small town, the topic generated gossip and news stories. The subject was hotly debated throughout the nation. Reporters and government officials alike speculated on what could have driven so many women to kill. Vincent Sacco explained the factors that create these criminal patterns in his book, When Crime Waves. He noted that when one case is widely reported upon, it increases awareness in the public, which leads more people to report similar crimes that might otherwise go ignored. This leads to an increase in arrests and the perception that crime is on the rise, even if actual crime rates haven't changed. In other words, we can't say for sure whether arsenic poisoning suddenly became incredibly common in the mid-1800s, or if this was an ongoing practice for a small but steady number of desperate women. We can say, however, that Marianne Robson must have known of the so-called poisoning epidemic. And soon, she'd follow in the footsteps of those deadly women. Coming up, we'll discuss Marianne Robson's first marriage and the numerous untimely deaths that followed. Now, back to the story. Marianne Robson's early life was marked by tragedy and struggle. She grew up in the poor mining village of Low Moorsley, England, and lost her father at the age of nine. But after working in the homes of her wealthy clients, she realized that she wanted more for herself than a lifetime of labor and toil. Mary Ann was 19 years old when she met a 35-year-old laborer named William Mowbray in 1852. Although he was far from wealthy, his work was steady and Mary Ann saw an opportunity in him. Their courtship was brief. Mary Ann discovered she was pregnant a few months after they met, spurring him to propose. In order to avert scandal, their wedding was held in a church 20 miles from her hometown on July 18, 1852. No one from Marianne's family attended. To further avoid disgrace, the newlyweds immediately moved to southern England. William had lived there previously and knew the area. Marianne didn't have any local friends or acquaintances, which was a blessing as no one could work out the timing around her pregnancy and wedding date. Marianne's reputation was salvaged, but it came at the cost of her social life. She found herself desperately lonely. In addition, it seems that during the first few years of her marriage, Marianne didn't speak to her mother at all. We can't say why for sure, but it appears that Margaret didn't approve of Marianne's shameful pregnancy and hurried wedding. To make matters worse, William hopped from job to job, moving frequently. Just as Marianne began to settle into one small town, she'd have to pick up and relocate to another. The baby that spurred the marriage didn't survive infanthood, nor did the next three or four that Marianne gave birth to. In fact, Marianne lost so many children in the next four years she lost track of how many times she was pregnant during her marriage to William. There are no records from this time of Marianne's children. We can deduce that they all died before they could be baptized, as otherwise the churches would have kept some kind of evidence. We have no way of determining their names, their cause of death, or the circumstances of their birth. 
we can't say for certain whether Marianne took steps to eliminate her sons and daughters. It's possible that some of these pregnancies ended in stillbirth or miscarriage. Psychiatrist Dr. Emma Robertson Blackmore found that the trauma associated with a miscarriage or the loss of a child can follow the mother for years, negatively impacting her mental state and increasing her risk of mental disorders. Additionally, Cheryl S. Heller and Charles H. Cena with the Infant Mental Health Journal reported that even if the mother later goes on to give birth to a healthy baby, her parenting style and her ability to form a bond with the child will be negatively impacted by the prior miscarriage or infant death. Of course, those studies only focused on motherhood in the modern era. In Marianne's time, which predated oral contraceptives and easy-to-use condoms, unplanned or unwanted pregnancy was far more common. In reviewing literature and diary entries related to child loss in the 1800s, historian Shannon Withycombe found that many women of the era treated miscarriage as a positive, even celebrated development. It was a temporary emancipation from the struggles of motherhood. It's impossible to say for sure whether Marianne Mowbray greeted her repeated pregnancies and the subsequent losses with grief, relief, or some combination of the two. What is clear is that she continued to conceive repeatedly, likely due to the societal pressure to be a mother. On June 23, 1856, Margaret Jane Mowbray was born. Two years later, another daughter arrived named Isabella. By naming her daughter Margaret after her estranged mother, it seems that Marianne longed to reconnect with her distant parent. Perhaps motivated by the births of her first surviving grandchildren, Marianne and Margaret reconciled soon after the birth. The Mowbray family even moved back to Sunderland, close to where Marianne grew up. But tragedy wasn't far behind. Four-year-old Margaret Jane died in 1860 shortly after the move. Records don't say much about her cause of death. Some have speculated that she was the first victim of Marianne's killer streak, but there's not much hard evidence to support that. We do know that the ongoing series of deaths put a strain on Marianne and William Mowbray, and their marriage was far from idyllic. The years away from her family, while William barely eked out a living, had soured Mary Ann's perspective on married life. She was tired. She didn't want to keep moving from town to town. She didn't want to be continuously pregnant. She didn't want to go through labor after labor just to lose all of her babies. But she didn't have much choice in the matter. On October 2, 1861, just over one year after Margaret Jane's death, 29-year-old Marianne had another daughter. This girl was also named Margaret Jane, after her older, deceased sister. As author Tori Telfer speculated in her book, Lady Killers, the reuse of Margaret's name may have indicated Marianne's own mental state and her viewpoint that her children were interchangeable and replaceable. Two years after Mary Jane Mowbray II's birth, in November 1863, Marianne's first surviving son was born, John Robert. He was just another unwanted child. 
another mouth to feed with the little money Marianne had. She needed a change, and fast. And if her husband couldn't give her respite, she'd have to take matters into her own hands. Marianne was desperately unhappy in her marriage, but there was nothing she could do. In Victorian England, divorce wasn't only taboo, it was legally difficult, bordering on impossible. In order to receive a divorce, a woman first had to prove that her husband had committed adultery and that he'd engaged in other socially unacceptable crimes like incest or bestiality. In all of England, only one court existed that could grant divorces, which dissolved roughly 10 marriages per year every year. If a woman left her husband without properly securing the legal right to do so, she'd lose custody of her children, plus any claims to property ownership, even over what she'd owned prior to the marriage. In short, if a woman like Marianne was unhappy with her marriage, her options were to remain in the unhappy relationship or find herself penniless and separated from her babies. It's no wonder so many women at the time resorted to murder. Dr. Juliana Brynas explained that people in unhappy relationships are more likely to suffer from mental disorders like anxiety or depression. These people also tend to be less giving and nurturing than single people, perhaps because they lack the mental bandwidth to give back to the world outside themselves. This was true for Marianne, who was utterly disinterested in the work of a mother or caretaker. She spent more and more time fantasizing about how her life could be different. If only she'd married better. If only she were free to pursue other opportunities. In 1863, William finally found a steady job that didn't require him to move every few years. While he worked on a steamship, 31-year-old Marianne and her surviving three children settled into a comfortable but humble home in Sunderland, England. It was around this time that William first bought life insurance policies on himself and his children. They would pay out 35 pounds for William's death and a more modest sum for the children. Given how few had survived infancy, the purchase probably seemed worth the upfront expense, even for the financially struggling family. On paper, Marianne had achieved everything that a 31-year-old woman in Victorian England could be expected to. Her husband had a steady job, she had a healthy son and two daughters. But she still wanted more. She longed for wealth and stability, and freedom from the stresses of childcare. Even the occasional services of her maid didn't give her the respite she wanted. Marianne felt that she had no choice but to break with societal expectations. And sometime while she was living in Sunderland, she embarked on an extramarital affair with a man named Joseph Natris. The records don't show when or how Marianne and Joseph met, but at some point between 1864 and 1870, Marianne fell passionately in love with Joseph. Perhaps she imagined that Joseph would marry her if only William were out of the way. Of course, it would be hard to land a husband with three children depending on her, so Marianne would need to eliminate them, too. In Victorian England, arsenic was astonishingly easy to come by. It was a popular and inexpensive rat poison. 
and it wouldn't have raised any eyebrows at all if Marianne were to buy it in large quantities. We don't know exactly how she administered the poison, but it's widely believed that Marianne slipped arsenic into her 10-month-old son John's food or tea. In September of 1864, he fell ill. His symptoms included intestinal distress and fever. The ailment was sudden and worked quickly. Soon, the child passed away. Lillian Di Bortoli of the Center for Forensic Behavioral Sciences Australia studied trends among parents who murder their own children. Most child-killing parents are fathers or stepfathers. Mothers who kill their own biological children are rare and usually suffer from mental conditions that are a factor in their murderous drive. After so many losses, William barely batted an eye at John's death. In his mind, the only notable thing was that the tragedy brought with it a silver lining. William and Marianne were able to collect the insurance payment. Journalist Zachary Crockett found that nearly a third of all serial killers murder for financial gain. In fact, serial killing for profit is the second most common motive, with killing for pleasure only slightly more common. As for Marianne, she gave little indication that she felt any guilt for her own actions, and it wouldn't take long for her to kill again. At some point in late 1864 or early 1865, William injured his foot, leaving him unable to go to work. While the damage seemed minor and he was expected to heal soon, Marianne had little patience for her husband lounging around the house, requiring her care while he didn't bring in any money. On January 14, 1865, after eating the food Marianne had prepared for him, William was struck with a sudden bout of painful diarrhea and fever. The local surgeon, Mr. Gamage, was summoned to the Mowbray home, where he examined William. He determined that William's symptoms were entirely consistent with typhus fever and sadly informed Marianne that there was nothing they could do but wait and pray. Hours passed, and William's suffering lasted through the night into the next morning. Finally, early on January 15th, he died, leaving 32-year-old Marianne a widow. In a matter of months, Marianne had freed herself from an unwanted husband and baby, and she got away scot-free. Her success would only whet her appetite for more deaths. Next, we'll explore how the recently widowed Mary Ann Mowbray seduced and then murdered yet another husband. Now, back to the story. After a tragic and poverty-stricken lifetime, Mary Ann Mowbray poisoned her husband and son between 1864 and early 1865. The newly widowed 32-year-old was free to pursue a relationship with Joseph Natras, the man with whom she'd been having an affair. Not only did Marianne inherit all of William's meager possessions, but she was able to collect a 35-pound life insurance payment on him. That's the equivalent of a little under $4,000 in 2019. And this was in addition to the smaller sum she received for baby John's death. 
Doctors listed William's cause of death as typhus fever and diarrhea. While typhus bears little resemblance to arsenic poisoning, it's quite possible the doctor intended to write typhoid, which would more closely match William's condition. Typhoid and arsenic toxicity both cause intestinal issues and fever. For 12 years, Marianne Mowbray had been defined by her role as a wife and a mother. She'd spent the majority of her adult life with few legal rights and little social standing outside of her marriage. But now, all of that had changed. Yes, she still had two daughters to care for, but they were of little concern. She was free. In particular, she was free to pursue a new life with her lover, Joseph Natras. Except Marianne's union with Joseph was anything but the romantic, happy ending she'd hoped it would be. She sought out her lover and for the first time learned that he was married to another woman. He had neither the ability nor the inclination to file for divorce or make an honest woman of Marianne. Disgusted that Joseph wouldn't marry her, she broke off their affair, but she'd continued to nurse a broken heart. Marianne still genuinely loved the man who'd inspired her to murder her family. Without a new husband waiting in the wings, Marianne realized that her situation was more precarious than she'd originally assumed. She couldn't work and raise the children at the same time, and she had no intention of returning to a life of manual labor. That meant that Marianne needed to find a new husband and fast. And since few men were willing to marry a woman with children, Marianne needed to take care of her unwanted burdens. In the spring of 1865, just months after William's death, Marianne's daughter, Margaret Jane II, grew sick with gastric distress. She suffered from the same symptoms that had plagued her father and brother. Day and night, Marianne sat by her daughter's bedside, feeding her tea and broth. But her efforts were for nothing. After a few days of lingering sickness, Margaret Jane Mowbray II died within a few weeks of her fifth birthday. At least, that's how the situation appeared from the outside. In reality, 32-year-old Marianne slipped arsenic into Margaret's food and drink. Her daughter's decline and death were exactly the outcome that she'd hoped for. Margaret Jane II's death certificate listed her cause of death as typhus fever. This was the second time in Marianne Mowbray's life that a daughter named Margaret Jane died under her care. This may be a coincidence, but the repetition also might have indicated something more. Criminal psychology writer Fiona Guy noted that serial killers often engage in repetitive behaviors when they kill. They'll compulsively use the same tactics or target victims who share a common trait, for example, the name Margaret. We don't know for sure if Marianne murdered the first Margaret Jane or if that child really died of natural causes. But for some reason, Marianne felt a strange need to recreate Margaret Jane Mowbray I's death over and over again. Later in her life, Marianne gave birth to two more daughters named Margaret, one of whom she went on to murder. 
While it's clear that some of Marianne's motivation lay in the financial payout, based on the naming pattern, we can also suppose that Marianne was driven, to some degree, by a killer compulsion as well. It was a compulsion that could never be satiated as long as Marianne lived. But there was still the question of her one living daughter, Isabella, whether she was motivated by affection for her daughter or fear of getting caught, we can't say. But rather than continue her spate of poisoning, Marianne instead left Isabella to live with her mother, Margaret. Without the child in tow, Marianne had the freedom to find a job. In 1865, she found a job as a nurse at the Old Sunderland Infirmary. Author Martin Connolly noted in his book, Marianne Cotton, Dark Angel, that nursing in Victorian-era Europe was distinctly different from nursing today. It was a low-paid, low-skill manual job in which nurses handled household chores for their sick patients. While a nurse may occasionally administer medical treatment to her charge, she typically only did so at a doctor's instruction. Marianne found herself doing laundry, cooking and bathing patients. Perhaps on the hunt for a new husband, she became close with a few of the men she cared for. This time, she'd find a wealthy and well-established husband who could take care of her. Journalist Sabrina Maddow noted that for most of Western history, societal forces made it difficult, bordering on impossible, for women to financially support themselves. Marrying for money was a survival mechanism for underprivileged women whose only alternative was to starve in the streets. Gold digging didn't carry the same stigma that it does in modern Western society. One patient named George Ward was close to Marianne's age and seemed to be in a decent financial situation, even though he was too sick to work when Marianne met him. While little information survives about the pair's relationship, we know that they were married on August 28, 1865. We should note that Marianne's relationship with George was clearly more calculated than her marriage to William had been. Marianne's letters to her mother never even mentioned George's name, a clear sign that Marianne considered him beneath her notice. Given that Marianne Ward's entire marriage passed without a single pregnancy, we can also deduce that George was either sterile or impotent. The latter seems more likely. And within a few weeks of their wedding, George's medical condition took a turn for the worse. Psychology researchers Ju Young Lee and Sasha Reed published a paper exploring trends in serial killer psychology. They found that murderers are opportunists and try to avoid situations that increase their risk of getting caught. They pick victims who are already vulnerable and whose deaths won't draw unwanted attention or suspicion. In Marianne's case, the already ailing George Ward served as the perfect victim. Now that she was in his home and next in line to inherit, she began poisoning her husband. Doctors were baffled by his sudden decline in health. George grew weaker by the day, and when the medics couldn't determine what caused his sickness, they told Marianne to begin regularly leeching him. Every day, Marianne placed 12 leeches on George, and with each passing hour, he grew worse. His wounds from the leeching didn't heal, 
and he was soon bleeding continuously. Eventually, George lost all sense of feeling in his hands and feet. While it's quite apparent that Marianne was poisoning her husband, it's likely that his medical treatment also played a role in his decline. He was exhibiting the symptoms of ongoing severe blood loss. Whatever George's actual cause of death, he breathed his last breath on October 20th, 1866, when he was 33. While we can't say exactly what Marianne was thinking as she killed George, we can make some suppositions from the timing. For example, it took 12 years of marriage to her first husband, William Mowbray, before she killed him. And yet George Ward survived only 14 months wedded to Marianne. It seems that during the brief period between her first marriage and her second, she'd become hardened. She was no longer interested in love or living a proper housewife's life. Instead, she was resolved to marry and kill for her own financial best interest. Author Barrett Brogard noted that the psychological factors that lead a person to become a serial killer are not well understood. This is in part due to the fact that there are no traits or backgrounds that are universally shared among all known serial murderers. However, it's not uncommon for some murderers, like Marianne, to become increasingly callous and calculated over time. This leads some researchers to conclude that a degenerative mental condition might be a factor in their behavior. Whatever the reason, with George Ward's death, now 33-year-old Marianne Ward was locked into a pattern. She'd spend the rest of her days building the life she'd always wanted. All she needed to achieve it was to seduce, marry, and kill. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Marianne's story. We'll explore her subsequent marriages, births, and the dozen more murders that she committed before she was finally caught and convicted. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.